0: And criticism meet. You're listening to the Split Frame of Reference podcast. Welcome back to the Split Frame Reference Podcast. I'm Nick.
1: And I'm Allison.
0: And we've been very busy. So Allison, what have we been up to?
1: We have been traveling and doing conferences. Yay, Yay,
0: fun. So uh, It kind of
1: is. I mean, we're a bunch of nerds, and we get together with other nerds, read papers, and we go to these conferences just to hear other papers. And
0: to get dinner with friends, yes. with new friends, too. With
1: other nerd friends. Yes, yes. so we
0: got to see and Huebner. And Uber nerds yeah, that are Uber far nerds.
1: surpassed yeah. us in yeah. every way. <laughs> we
0: got to hang out with Jamin Huebner and Richard Middleton up at uh, Northeastern, and it was just a lot of fun. It was just a great time, and Rochester, New York is beautiful, so... Yeah, so tell us about your paper that, uh, that you did.
1: Yeah, so I presented um, a paper titled Eve Christology, Embodiment, Gender, and Salvation, and I did so at Duke, the Duke Graduate Conference in Theology, and then also the Interdisciplinary Theology Conference um, put on by CATA.
0: Yep, the Canadian American Theological Association, of which we are members.
1: Yes, Um, They basically, they're not attempting to replace um, ETS.
0: Evangelical Theological Society, yeah. um,
1: But it kind of adds another dimension of evangelical, um, I guess, participation. I think ETS has become extremely narrow Mm. in its focus and its um, membership. And so this is more of a broad uh, tent evangelical organization. And we we love what they're doing. um, And it's a good way to, I don't know. Um, wrench out. Yeah. out, run into all sorts of different evangelicals and yeah. have good conversations. All right.
0: And so what are people going to be listening to in about 30 seconds?
1: Oh, geez. In a nutshell? Yep. Um, okay. Um, so basically I decided, um, to do, how should I say, I think, okay, it's 1 Timothy 2. All right. Um, but focusing on verses 13 through, uh, 3, 1a. Um, oh. So, and it's tying everything into the Christology, the high Christology that came uh, beforehand hmm. and not taking um, the passage out of context and only focusing on verses 11 and 12. Gotcha. Okay. I'd say my last 10 years, I focused on verses 11 and 12. So it's not, it's it's now time to get a broader picture.
0: Excellent. Before we do this, you have something to give to me that a listener really yes.
1: Wants. Okay. So someone, someone very special to me. Um, has brought to my attention that Nick has not yet eaten um, the jelly beans. He was supposed to because we've gotten lots of um, different ratings.
0: Yep, we have four, we're have at four and a half stars out of five out of six reviews on iTunes.
1: Yes, so yes. thank you, Bethany Goosen. I really appreciate this. Um, I've had to suffer for so long drinking horrible things. And actually, um, we were just out. With, we just had dinner a while ago. Yep. Um. With um. With the Burringtons. Yep.
0: At uh, Lucky Baldwin's, which was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of fun, except for the part where I tried your beer and it tasted like a sharpie.
0: <sighs> it, it's stone. It tasted like I a mean, sharpie. It, like
1: this was the worst ever.
0: It's just, you just you're focusing on the negative. I mean, you, like you, the sharpie you, taste. You, you, you have, know what? You have no palate. I've got yeah. jelly
1: beans here, so let me. How many reviews did we get? I think we got. quite a I think, a think
0: few. we have three actual reviews, and but three, three actual three, three reviews are or there's three written reviews versus just people giving us a five star or two
1: star. Okay, you know star. what? In no. the spirit of inaugurated eschatology or something like that, except more horrible.
0: Um, I'm doing one. We so will give do
1: three for now, and more for later when we do a full count. All right. Oh my gosh, just... I, I it was going to be a handful. So, be nice. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so the first one is either, let's see, which one is this? This one is either dead fish or strawberry banana smoothie. Yay. What is
0: it? Dead fish.
1: (laughs) And there's nothing in your cup. Oh, wait, you can spit it out. Yes, I can.
0: Oh, it's dead fish. No, this isn't a jelly bean
1: tasting. You eat that.
0: I'm gonna be kissing you later. You don't Ew, want me to no, not. This. All right, next one. Okay. Oh. okay,
1: you can't spit this one out. Oh, you cannot spit this I'm one just... out. Oh. Okay, so to wash that down, you can either have caramel corn. Ew, I don't like caramel. I don't or like caramel. moldy cheese.
0: They they pick like the worst things.
1: Cheese is mold, though. <laughs> yes.
0: No. <Two>. Oh.
1: oh. <laughs> this is awesome. Okay. Stop. Stop that. Oh. Okay. Now, to get rid of that taste, you may either have a juicy pear or booger. I'm hoping for booger. Is it pear or booger? You can't tell. That's kind of disturbing. Are you just deciding booger's not that bad? Yep, that's what happened.
0: Yeah, booger's not that bad. Yeah. Whoa. So actually, I actually think it might have been. This paro. is
1: great because didn't like at one point like you not get any of the bad ones and. I
0: don't remember. That was a lifetime ago.
1: Yeah. Ugh. Well, this is this is wonderful. Blech. This this makes me Blech. Blech. this makes it all worth it. Blech. Blech. Really.
0: Well. All right. So now that that is done, enjoy as best you can. Yeah. Allison's conference. This paper.
1: recording um is specifically taken from the uh, Duke. Yep. One um, but. Uh, the most recent one was the Interdisciplinary Theology Conference.
0: In Rochester. Didn't you win an award for that paper?
1: I did.
0: What was this award Yay. called?
1: Uh The Jack and Phyllis Middleton Memorial Award. For? Excellence in Bible and Theology.
0: First place? Yep. That's right. All right. Without further ado. Wait. Oh. What?
1: No. What? Um, Nick also gave a paper presentation, which he does not want to talk about for some reason. No.
0: it's. I'll tell you the title. Learning in the Pastoral Epistles. That's basically what it was. So the famous verb, you know, the verb to learn, or the imperative to learn, in verse eleven. Basically, what you've been spending your past ten years on. That's well,
1: what I on. no, that's not fair. He forgot to record it. So
0: yeah, but I mean, <laughs> there was like five people at mine, so it wasn't as interesting as yours. Well, so. anyway, and no one wants to hear about learning in the pastoral epistles. Everyone wants to hear about
1: ah, uh, I don't know about that. You're
0: sexier than learning. So there we go. I don't
1: know how I feel about this.
0: Anyway, without further ado, enjoy the Duke. Theology, graduate, no, Duke Graduate Conference in Theology.
1: Yay, you win. Yep. All right, I have a confession to make. I'm a theologian, and I do read the Bibles, and I like it. <laughs> All right, um, so if you hear me, also refer to Paul in here. I'm not taking a position on authorship. It's just a shorthand, so don't get too excited. <laughs> All right, go ahead and read it. Scholarly interaction with the position of Eve in relation to Christology has tended to relegate Eve to an absent, subordinate, or implicit position from the standpoint of the typological significance of Adam. For example, Benjamin Dunning describes Paul's typology as one that tethers together two men, Adam to Christ. The result is a question framed with the assumption of the presence of only a particularly male representation of salvation with an inadvertent question mark when it comes to where a female body fits in the scheme of salvation. That is, the discussion is approached from the standpoint of the assumed presence of Adam and the problem of Eve's placement as a representation of humanity as a whole. It is my contention that the difficulty of whether a male Christ can represent humanity is an artificial difficulty conceived with a lens that from the start erases Eve, i.e. women, and then either mourns or celebrates her absence. It is time to begin approaching Christology and gender from a a fresh perspective. Were you guys able to hear me all right? Thumbs up? Okay. All right. It is time to begin approaching Christology and gender from a fresh perspective, yet without ignoring the historical exclusion of women on the basis of biblical, primarily Pauline text. For this reason, I will launch the beginning of a discussion of how Eve figures Christologically and we subsequently transfigure our notions of the embodiment of salvation. The question of where Eve figures in the theological world both reflects the inner world of worship and has the power to transform how one relates to the world. I will be arguing that far from her being absent, or merely present as an absence, Eve is a type of Christ whose existence serves to undermine the prevailing notion of male domination in the Christological representation of embodied humanity. I will accomplish my thesis by first offering a change in lenses from an emphasis on both historical reconstruction and patriarchy as the frame for understanding Eve's place in salvation, to the utilization of varied gendered language in the Pauline text to exemplify embodied faith and how this undermines various perceived gender hierarchies. This thesis will also involve considering how early Christian writers used gender language to describe the struggle of faith, embodied existence, and future hope. The point here is to provide a plausibility lens, or starting point, from which to be able to conceive of an Eve Christology, opening the doors to reimagine the place of Eve in our theological world. Second, I will attempt to launch a uniquely Eve Christology. Far from being absent or implicit, it will be argued that 1 Timothy 2, 13-3, 1a, with 2 Corinthians eleven three 3 offer Eve as a type of Christ and representation of humanity. I'll work out how the text understands Christ as representative of humanity and lastly briefly, uh, briefly wrestle with whether Christ as male reinforces gendered power structures or serves to diffuse them. Does the idea that a woman is merely a deformed man who must become male to enter the salvation best capture the figure uh, figures of Adam and Christ represented by these Pauline writings? How one approaches um, and or experiences the larger question of gender in the Christian world will shape what is noticed or goes unnoticed in the Pauline corpus. Does one approach Paul with a distinctly ancient logic of sexual difference, one that conceptualizes this difference not in terms of an ontological and incommensurable binary, but rather on a single sliding scale oriented towards maleness and deeply rooted in um, variables of status? Or does one approach the question of gender and representation from the vantage point of only or primarily passages considered exclusionary, making them uh, universally applicable only to women? Does the mention of Adam as a type of Christ in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 suddenly indicate a logical universal, such as only Adam or only men can represent humanity? It's not my desire to contend there is never the assumption of male priority in the background of the Pauline text, or to argue that everything fits neatly or perfectly into a modern feminist scheme. However, I would like to offer the following interpretive possibility. There exists a unity and diversity in Christ that relativizes power structures, which allow for men, in a metaphorical sense, to become women in the context of these structures— and women to become men in relation to gendered power structures. This lens, which will be used as a starting point for the approaching of the position of Eve in relation to Christ, comes out of the following brief points. One, a sampling of Paul's use of feminine and masculine language in regards to himself and spiritual growth of believers towards their telos in Christ. And two, how early Christians used gendered language to describe themselves in relation to Christ. Paul Power, Embodiment, and Destiny. Paul readily applies feminine imagery to himself and male believers as well as a masculine imagery to all believers, including women, in order to encourage an overall transformation in how they live out Christ in the world. The power of a metaphor is in its ability to subvert our sensibilities by conveying something unexpected or unknown. Similarly, uh, the way Paul employs feminine imagery to himself and to men is subversive as it invites listeners to accept feminine imagery of Paul, opening the door for it to be applied to themselves in order to understand what he's conveying. In a world where virtue was manly and males were were stringently cautioned against displaying any kind of effeminate behavior, dress role-playing, or emotion, Paul captures the imagination in such a way as to take something societally devalued and threatening to masculinity and give it a pride of place in Christ, simultaneously changing one's understanding of Paul's role as an apostle and one's own behavior. These uses of metaphor are not merely decorative but formative. Paul uses three mother, uh, mother metaphors to describe himself and his role as an apostle who gives birth and nurses children for our purposes too. 1 Corinthians 3, 1-2 and you can also check out 1 Thessalonians 2-7 and Galatians 4:19. The first is set in the context of an infighting for superiority of place and boasting in connection to various religious leaders whether Apollos, Paul, Paul, or Cephas. Paul accomplishes what Gaventa identifies as a metaphor squared involving a double switch in order to counter this effort to gain the highest place over others. So for example... Brothers, I could not talk to you as spiritual people, but as fleshly people, as infants in Christ. I fed you milk, but not solid food, because you were unable to take it. Indeed, you are still not able, even now, for you are still of the flesh. Key to the scenario is not only the identification of the Corinthians as infants in Christ, who need milk rather than superiors, but Paul himself is a mother role, in a mother role, feeding them milk. Initially, it's tempting to take the milk metaphor as merely a sign of immaturity, but it in fact urges the Corinthians, because all is said to belong to them already in Christ, in terms of status, to regard themselves as in need of life-sustaining milk of the gospel. First, he metaphorizes, with apologies for the barbarism, the gospel as milk, then he squares that image by metaphorizing himself as the mother who, body applies the milk. The society of Paul's day generally held mothers to be lesser than fathers and childhood as a precursor to adulthood away from the mother. In contrast, Paul has simultaneously lowered himself in the Corinthians and by the same token, elevated motherhood into a pop soulship into metaphorical space, seeing it as corresponding to a deeper reality in Christ. When Paul presents himself as a mother, he voluntarily hands over the authority of a patriarch in favor of a role that will bring him shame, the shame of a female identified male. Yet the imagery is effective because it plays on hierarchical expectations. Paul presents himself as the authority who does not conform to standard norms of authority. Paul has transfigured himself, allowing the foolishness of the cross from chapter 1 to permeate his being. In Galatians 4.19, Paul portrays himself as a woman in labor who remains so until Christ is birthed in and as the Galatian churches. Paul explains that he himself is in labor in his anguish as an apostle due to the Galatian tendency to return to slavery due to the prompting of the missionaries Paul opposes. My children, for whom I am again in labor until Christ be formed in you, I would like to be with you now and to change my tone. Or I am perplexed because of you Paul again freely feminizes himself in an effort to plead for the Galatian churches to embrace the fullness of the gospel of freedom again in order to accept Paul's message about himself they must see him as a sort of mother in anguish but nonetheless the one bringing them the message of freedom and sonship because of the son. Paul the metaphorical mother has already declared in Galatians 3 26-29 that through faith all are sons huyoy, and heirs of God in Christ serving as the basis for another flip in expectations on several accounts including gender Gender difference contextually has no basis on status and participation level in the life of the church. In Christ and through the world of metaphor, Paul can be a mother, women can be firstborn sons. The result is not an erasure of difference, but an embracing of it with a functional abolition of the status difference accompanying it. Sonship is no longer gender or hierarchically based, but shared in relation to Christ. Gendered metaphor used by early Christians. Of interest to this discussion are instances where masculine imagery is described to early Christian women who have put on Christ. At other times, their female bodies are identified with the body of Christ who is worshiped. What I hope to show in these few examples is merely how adopting masculine imagery functions to metaphorically switch the dynamics of power for women whose bodies were exploited and destroyed in ways meant to highlight their gender. Strikingly, these accounts do not attempt to actually remake these women into men as though they had to put off the feminine to make way for the masculine Christ. Rather, in a metaphorical space, women as women were able to take on what was thought to be only available to men, such as bravery and steadfastness, thus while remaining women. They defied gendered expectations in Christ. First example comes from Perpetua, a twenty-year-old breastfeeding mother who found herself threatened with death for her faith. The narrator of her story opens with appeal to a single manifestation of the one Holy Spirit, and this is through the ages who gives the gifts to all people as sons and daughters. Brothers are told to associate themselves with the martyrs, in this instance, Perpetua. Perpetua herself describes the fear for her child's life, since she is unable to nurse him, along with her father's rejection of her as his daughter. However, she believes the power comes not from ourselves, but from God. Before her death, she dreams of her impending martyrdom. I was stripped of my clothing, and suddenly I was a man. My assistants began to rub me with oil, as was the custom before a contest." Her fight is thought to not be against beast or opponents, but cosmically she battles the devil. In this context, she is described as retaining her modesty while immodesty is forced upon her in the process of her destruction. In the final scene, Perpetua guides the gladiator's trembling hand to her throat, interpreted by the narrator in this way, so great a woman could not have been slain had she not herself willed it. We get the strong sense that the power of God and the spirit transfigures power dynamics so that where one may see a young woman and mother embedded within her is also a powerful agency, an athlete and warrior. Positionally, she is a man who controls her destiny and battles evil because she is the true spouse of Christ. Similarly, a martyr named Bladina is called a noble athlete who has renewed strength with her confession of faith. She was hung on a post in the form of a cross, waiting for a wild beasts to rip her apart. But she became a source of hope, strength, and courage for others who saw in the person of their sister, in her female body, him who was crucified for them. Although her body is described as tiny and weak, she is seen as an inspiration to her brothers. for She had to put on Christ that mighty invincible athlete who has overcome the adversary and won the crown of immortality. Companies the. Accompanying these masculine metaphors are powerful feminine ones as well. She is a noble mother encouraging her children, duplicating in her own body all her children's sufferings, transcending outward expectations of her gender to onle- onlookers. At the very least, these narratives reveal that early Christians thought a woman could represent them and could embody Christ. There does not appear to be anxiety in these accounts over mixing male and female metaphors, nor reservations about a female body hung on a pole representing the male Christ hanging on a cross on behalf of humanity. There's more than enough space within Christ and the Church for males and females to represent one another, and notably Christ. Eve has a type of Christ with Christological implications. Now that space has been created for a shared understanding of the possibility of a female representation of Christ, it is time to build a case that Eve is the type of Christ serving as a representation of humanity and the church especially in the context of 1 Timothy 2 with 2 Corinthians 11. I will try and show that like Adam, she is a negative representation of humanity and identified throughout some relevant or unique Christological features in the passage. So now the Christological context of 1 Timothy 2, 13 through um, 31a. The Christological uh, concern of 1 Timothy can be summarized as follows. The salvation and hope for false teachers is dependent on Jesus Christ, who is characterized as the human one, i take up CEB, <laughs> who saves everyone. In contrast, false teaching undermines the telos of Paul's instruction, which is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith, and stands in opposition to the household of God, which is by faith. Earlier, we noticed that in other limited considerations of Paul, the ha- that household language accompanied uh, Paul's rhetoric um, can at times serve to reorient one's perspective away from normal household expectations and roles. Hence, Paul as an apostle can be a mother, women as well as men have the household status of firstborn sons. The Christological themes and wording in First Timothy are eerily similar to those found in Romans 5 regarding Adam and Christ. Some noteworthy themes. Access and hope are in Christ. The love of Christ in the heart. The ungodly, specifically false teachers in and in 1 Timothy, have hope in Jesus Christ tied to salvation. The similar wording in the Adam-Christ typological connection in Romans 5 to 1 Timothy 2 has to do with the use of anthropos to describe Christ rather than a term to denote his maleness. Um, so you can also check out 5, 12 through 19 Romans. Adam, a term often used to convey humanity on its own without masculinity in mind, is similarly described as anthropos. Just as all humanity dies in Adam, all humanity lives in Christ. In 1 Timothy 2, we are told that the Savior God desires for all people, Anthropos, to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth, because there is one mediator between God and humanity, the human one. Uh, The human one, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And for this reason, Paul has appointed a teacher and apostle. However, what follows in 1 Timothy are the well-known behavioral connections or corrections that mention men and women specifically, though perhaps more infamously the women. What links 1 Timothy 2:11 through 3 1a to the previous Christological discussion? Uh, therefore, un, in 2 8, Paul desires men, andros, to lift their hands without wrath, and likewise, hosotos, the women, gunikas, to be characterized by modesty, self-control, and good works. You can look at 2, 9-10. A life of quietness and tranquility is tied to Paul's telos because it is empowered by God, the Savior, and Christ Jesus, the mediator of humanity. The reason Paul is an apostle who tells the truth and it is on this basis that he makes commands to men and women. Modesty, self-control, and good works without wrath and dissension all characterize the gospel as opposed to the false teachers who do not live a quiet life in all godliness and dignity. One would think that with the strong ties to living a peaceful and quiet life, God desires all human beings to be saved, Christ being the human one who is the mediator of humanity, offering himself as a ransom for all, that when the gender-specific passages are interpreted, the dominant Christology would be reflected. Instead, more attention has been paid to verses 11 through 12, in chapter 2, and with them an infinite number of interpretations, yet these verses are hailed as the very guide for understanding the role of women. Feel free to ask me about this in Q&A, <laughs> no time here. Um, so Eve as a type of Christ. and what follows, I will more closely make my case for Eve as a type that prefigures Christ in 1 Timothy 2, 13, uh, and then 3, 1a. Um, Eve may be identified as a type of Christ by, one, her resemblance, even by way of contrast, two, her linkage to Christ on a thematic and textual level, and three, how she functions to look ahead towards the work of Christ, who is the hope of the entire epistle. Each individual piece of evidence provides should be taken as together as a strand and not on its own, um, each making the entirety of the case. In Romans 5, both Adam and Christ serve representative functions, whereby Adam leads to sin and death, but Christ leads to grace and life. Similarly, um, in First Timothy, Eve typologically represents deception and transgression, and Christ represents the content uh, of the true instruction of, and grace of salvation. The mention of Christ and Eve are not meant as separate unrelated parts but inextricably linked. Christ has already been established as the mediator of human humanity in terms of salvation. Eve is used to represent that deceived women the deceived women of the passage and entire church at the very least by implication here and overtly in second Corinthians 11:3. For example, for I am afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by its craftiness, your minds will be led astray by the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Note that no special representative function of, we- of Eve for only women is spelled out, though grammatically it is at least possible to link it to the women in 1 Timothy. Thematically, what is repeated to a specific gender, women, is contextually a gender-inclusive concern. Just as the church, male and female, was at at risk for accepting a different Jesus, and was preached in 2 Corinthians, and were thus compared to Eve. In 1 Timothy, we also have similar themes of truth versus lies, as well as issues with trying to give one's pride of place versus humility. Canonically, we can take Eve as a representative of those both of both genders who have fallen into deception, and thematically, is one of the better options in 1 Timothy too. Again, the key here is not to claim that women specifically are not being singled out in 1 Timothy 2, but to realize that a gender-specific reference does not amount to a gender-exclusive one. Move often taken in regards to women, but not men. Perhaps both men and women may represent each other. Eve's representative function is evident in some additional ways in 1 Timothy 2. The first is the introduction of her narrative with Gar, introducing an example of reasoning behind the commands, in the form of a narrative illustration, the deception resulting transgressions dominant previously, with a future hope that will bolster Paul's desire for good behavior. The explanatory gar is far from rare and well-documented. Further, there is a switch between the singular and plural in 2.15, linking eve, the nearest singular feminine referent, to the plural, and aspect translators may try to smooth out for grammatical consistency. The plural subject in the verb, um, minosin, has several grammatical options that space will not permit the extended discussion of. Probably the best choice is to take it as referring to the women in general, or both the women and men, since their sections are linked with likewise. The nearest plural reference and the entire narrative are attempting to bolster Paul's case for good behavior. Eve is also linked to Christ thematically through the echo contained within Mark 10 regarding Christ's role as the mediator of humanity. Jesus is the one who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony at the proper time, 1 Timothy 2.6. We're swept back into the narrative context of Mark 10.45, where James and John are requesting uh, positions of power alongside Jesus, whose destiny is to be killed at before, res- or at, yeah, before resurrection. They were reminded, you know, that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Their request was to counter to was to counter to Jesus's chosen life as slave, and desired for those who embraced the truth of his message. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and his give his life as a liberation for many. In contrast to the false teachers who sought to elevate themselves above others, Paul wants listeners, readers to offer themselves to others in prayer and life, not assume authority or pride of place. Following the example of Christ by taking the second place rather than the place of priority may be the sentiment, ironically, before the narrative summary beginning with, for example, Adam was formed first, thereafter Eve in 1 Timothy 2.13. This is followed by a reminder of Eve's deception and implicitly their own, serving as an additional Christological link between Eve and Christ. In case there is a temptation to interpret this as women being more susceptible to deception as, mo- as women, one should consider that even though it is mentioned here that Adam was not deceived, he has no issue pairing the two implicitly in Romans 7 with the same term for deception. For sin seizing the opportunity in the commandment deceived me and through it put me to death. This is another possible indicator that even when Paul is being, being uh, gender specific he's, he's not being gender exclusive when it comes to those presented in these types and not picky when it comes to gender over which of the two figures led to the death requiring life in Christ. The last linkage of Eve with Christ goes back to what is arguably a packed Christological passage I leave it to, the, to you guys to decide if the reader uh, if the reading of the following passage is too obscure within the Christological context but she will be saved uh, so they say they, uh, by the childbirth if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The saying is trustworthy. Our passage retains the singular pointing back to Eve's narrative continuance, and so we get a future she will be saved, maybe divine passive, pointing ahead from Eve towards what? Salvation. So, Soteria is most often used to refer to the salvation that comes from Jesus Christ for sinners, which thematically go in hand in hand in our epistle, i.e., one is not merely saved in a way that is detached from how one lives their life. To have the salvation that is from God in Christ is to live a holy life that is not characterized by bad behaviors of the deceived false teachers, including their arrogance and extensive vice list at the beginning of the epistle. Even so, broader Pauline use and its immediate Christological context, I want you to take it within this context, It, it basically just not import another meaning. Um, it makes sense just to go along in context and not have to read more in, if you don't need to. What many find unpalatable and perhaps encourages translating soteria as preserved rather than salvation, besides speculations and reconstructions of Paul's interactions with the the Artemis cult, is the reference to the childbirth, which not a few take to refer to actual childbearing process of women generally. However, to say one can have salvation by having children certainly goes against everything Paul has ever said concerning salvation being by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Similarly, it goes beyond the wording and express theology of the passage to interpret this to mean women should pray to God instead of Artemis to help them through childbirth, even, this, even though this may be true by way of implication. The article uh, Tice um, allows us to see a particular childbirth in view that is not only thematically in line with the Christology before the passage, but also with the hope of Adam and Eve presented in Genesis 3.15 in the singular seed of the woman. It is, not, it is uncontroversial that Genesis 3.15 is taken by the church to be promise of Christ. However, the childbirth in 1 Timothy 2 refers to this promise, for referring to this promise does not have as much consensus, yet the childbirth does not appear to be representing an ongoing activity. Additionally, this particular childbirth has the possibility to save the one who has fallen into transgression, i.e., even those deceived like her, and so the article is best not taken as merely generic or collective of childbirth in general. Christ is the hope um, of this epistle for false teachers and likely the hope referred to here. If the Christ child is the one conveyed in this passage, why is Mary absent from this narrative, since she literally bore the Christ? I believe the childbirth of Christ has been conflated into Eve to further highlight the contrast between her and Christ, but with a twist. Contained within Eve, who led to the transgression and resulting death, is also the future hope for salvation. The author is closely associating Christ with Eve by placing him metaphorically in her womb. This is an intimate connection that goes beyond the closeness of the tight parallel structure linking Adam and Christ is another detail forcing us to look ahead from the fall of Eve and with her, the women and false teachers, to the salvation in Christ Jesus. It serves as a passage pregnant with hope, an eager anticipation we saw earlier um, Paul metaphorically took on in his own body as deliverer of the gospel, though male, um, when he spoke of his anguish waiting for Christ to be born in the Galatians. The gospel of Christ is something that is thought as a, of as a born a believer that will lead to the transfiguration of one's status so that one's fallen those fallen in deception has the, have the future possibility of salvation contained within them, along with a change of status. To cap off the case for the close connection between Eve and Christ, we come to the trustworthy statement, to say today separated by the designation, chapter 3. And yet it is a further signal that 2.15 is directly connected to everything that has been already con- um, said concerning Christ. The formulation in this letter and other Pauline material... Is, lit- is in liturgical fashion, accompanied uh, by Christological statements and promise of salvation. So, consider just two examples. There's others in other Pauline writings. First Timothy one fifteen. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. First Timothy four nine through ten. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, for this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially for those who believe. Now similarly, 1 Timothy 2.15 in its connection to 3.1a constitutes a Christological affirmation tied to deeds connected to the telos of Paul's instruction based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, she will be saved by the childbirth of Christ if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is a universal call and scope. Based on the evidence provided, it makes sense to acknowledge Eve as a type of Christ in her representing our deception and transgression. However, unlike the metaphorical use of Adam with Christ in First Timothy, we discover that contained within those who, like Paul earlier, are meshed in transgression and deception, there's also the hope of Christ for salvation. The power of God is such that contained even in our evil and fallenness is the possibility of future redemption. The martyrs understood this, readily seeing their persecution transfigured into glory in light of their baptism and connection to Christ. A woman's body brutalized and exploited was transfigured into Christ, who was their life. In Eve's deception, we are reminded of our own shortcomings, vying for a more powerful position at Jesus' right hand, but also the hope of humanity in Christ Jesus, open to transforming all of us, as well as our interactions. Finally, why consider a uniquely Eve Christology? The short answer is due to our own shortcomings and inability to imagine Christ apart from Adam. Historically, we have not only tended towards emitting female representation, but have resisted it. I believe metaphor can undermine this resistance. In metaphorical space, James Cone's Jesus can in a real sense be black, Paul can be a mother, and Perpetua can be a type of Christ hanging from the cross um, in Plodina. The crucified Savior challenges the status quo by diffusing and reconceptualizing power. If a society fully embraces that women have the same status, privileges, values, and opportunities that firstborn sons have, then eventually the status plant to the term son will fade away. In the end, I must answer the question of whether women may be saved by the crucified Christ Whatever they may represent him on earth, with a resounding yes. Yes.